Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you in particular, Yehuda and Lauren. Great to learn with you today. Today, debate number 20, a great debate, heaven versus earth. We're going to start with a little poll to get your views on this issue. Religion, religious life, religion should primarily be about the afterlife, the next world, olam haba, or a good combination of the next world and this world, or about this life, about this world. Cast your vote. Okay, 67% a combination, 33% about this life, about this world. Very interesting. Okay, friends, here we go. Can't wait to hear your ideas after this presentation. Should our primary concern as we go about living our lives be the world to come? After all, we will supposedly spend our eternity in such a soulful realm. Or should our primary concern be about this world? After all, that is all we can truly control anyways. Besides that is where we are at at present and where we can't easily focus on much beyond the here and now. Perhaps an appropriate resolution of this conundrum is what is at stake in a famous Talmudic debate in which Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagree over whether heaven or earth was created first. Beit Shammai says the heavens were created first, and then the earth, as it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth. But Beit Hillel says, the earth was created first. Oh, and then the heavens, as it says, Genesis 2.4, on the day that the Lord God created earth and heavens. Oh, there's a stira. There's a contradiction in the two chapters of Genesis. It's not the first contradiction of those two chapters, of course. What was created first? Heaven or earth? What are they really debating theologically? Perhaps Beit Shammai is suggesting the primacy of the heavens, and Beit Hillel is expressing the primacy of the earth. We generally tend to follow the view of Beit Hillel on halachic issues, and so it may be safe to assume, assume that's the case here as well. As such, although we remain mindful of the powerful instruction of Beit Shammai, we prioritize the teaching of Beit Hillel. We are to be concerned with our souls and the next world as Beit Shammai teaches, but the primary vehicle to get there is through a focus on this world 
and doing all we can to contribute to this world consistent with the view of Beit Hillel. Rather than try to bring the earth up to heavens, making the transcendental realm the primary focal point of our attention and concern, we focus on bringing the heavens down to earth by improving and refining our behavior and by removing violence and adding peace and justice. The Talmudic sage Rav Yochanan notes, the Holy One be blessed, said, I shall not dwell in Yerushalayim Shalmala, the celestial Jerusalem, until I dwell in Yerushalayim Shalmata, the earthly Jerusalem. That's in the Mesechet of Ta'anit 5a. Very interesting that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can't dwell in the celestial Jerusalem until HaKadosh Baruch Hu dwells in the earthly Jerusalem. Thus, the heavenly Jerusalem, the ideal, cannot be built until the earthly Jerusalem, the pragmatic, pragmatic city, is built. The concealed Jerusalem is the reward for achieving the building of the revealed city. So when we daven Bone Yerushalayim to build Jerusalem, what are we really davening for? To build an earthly city that we can visit all the, the souvenir shops and go into the wonderful restaurants and go to the hotel and the synagogues? Or are we building something in the realm of Shemayim? Friends, another way to consider the debate is by wondering whether the questions will, we will be asked when we stand to be judged, so to speak, after death will be about heaven, where we are going to, or about earth, where we are coming from. When one stands above earth but outside of heaven, which realm will be primary? To be sure, the conception of a world beyond our own has been a nearly impossible thought experiment since time immemorial. Throughout the eons, people of all stripes and denominations have wondered where the soul wanders after it leaves its flesh container. It's such an enormous question with manifold consequences. In truth, the idea of the gates of heaven emerges early on in the Torah. Anyone remember where? Genesis 28, 17. How awe-inspiring this place is, Jacob explained. It must be none other than God's house. It is the gate to heaven, it says. In Genesis, the gate to heaven. Is heaven itself and not only a terrestrial spot that happens to catalyze feelings of spirituality, actually an awe-inspiring place? Is it a place we should fear? Is it a physical place at all? How could we ever imagine something so wonderful when there's no temporal equivalent? Let's bracket these particular theological questions and instead reach for some meta, some meta questions. Do I believe in a God who judges? Do I think there can be a gates of heaven experience? How might engaging in such thoughts improve the way I live my life? Heaven is often understood as the last resting place for the righteous on earth. Through our viewing of popular media, we may expect that heaven is a white void filled with nothing but clouds and harps and angels. But nowhere is this vision of heaven really found in Jewish wisdom literature as such. Indeed, the normative interpretation of heaven in the Jewish tradition is not something we can picture as simple as Hollywood can design, but of another state of being altogether. The great Talmudic sage Rava 
Rava's about one quarter of the quotes in the Talmud, by the way. Rava provides a litany of questions that are asked before one is accepted into the heaven. These questions are not what one would expect. It says here in Masechet Shabbat 31a, Rava said, in the hour that one is brought in front of the heavenly court of judgment, one is asked, did you conduct your business affairs honestly? Did you set aside a special time in your schedule for Torah study? Did you do all you could to have children? Did you yearn for world redemption? Did you deal deeply in matters of wisdom? Did you learn critically? What a powerful statement about the nature of religious life that a question about business ethics would take primacy before one has to walk into eternal paradise. If we can extrapolate anything from these questions, it's that heaven itself is the, in the thought of the rabbis may not most centrally be a concept that primarily is about theological belief or ritual observance or prayer, but that it's rather focally about day-to-day -day ethics, whether or not one believes in it. Let's embrace the power of spiritual imagination to entertain such an idea. A lot of these have to do with, do, are we hopeful for the future? When it says, did you do what you could to have children? That may be literal, or it may be an idea. Did you believe in the future? Did you invest in the young people of the future? Just like the next question. Did you yearn for world redemption? Are we invested in the next generations? Interestingly enough, heaven is not primarily an end of life moment in Jewish thought. Rather, Jewish literature discusses the gates of heaven as a prayer moment as well. Each time we pray, we stand at the gates of heaven. But as the Talmud puts it, we have a problem. From the day that the temple was destroyed, it says in Brachot, the gates of prayer have been sealed, as it says in Eicha, what we read on Tisha B'Av. Even as I cry out and plead, God shut out my prayer. That is to say, in the, for the Talmud, the gates of prayer are closed. The gates of heaven are closed for our prayers to be accepted, with some exceptions, of course. And tears open the gates. Oppression opens the gates, they teach. Of course, most famously, at Ne'ilah, at Ne'ilah, before the gates are closed on Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur. The next tractate, Baba Matia says, but let us not despair, for the Talmud also instructs, even though the gates of heaven have been sealed, the gates of tears have not been sealed. This is the power of, 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 um, of emotion, and in particular of crying in a prayerful moment. The power of crying in our tradition to open up the gates. Okay, we have the opportunity through emotional awakening and tears from deep existential arousal to open the gates of tears and stand before the Holy One. Even as we consider what might be asked of us when we die, we might also think about what the first question is that we would have for God. What is it that we yearn to know? Each day with courage, we can think about approaching heaven. What is my life ultimately about? What are the questions that guide me? Make an opening for me, it says, in Song of Songs, Rabbah, like the eye of a needle, and I will open wide for you the gates of heaven. The entrance of heaven, that metaphysical barrier to the road to humanity's redemption, should always have a place in our minds and souls. 
while it might be too overwhelming to focus on the entryway with every action we do, it would be wise for us to take to heart the need to live ethically and to question ourselves before each of our actions. By doing so, we have not only the ability to restrain our basis impulses, but also the opportunity to reflect before we act. We might ask ourselves each day the questions we suspect we might ultimately be asked. Were you kind? Did you take care of the planet? Were you compassionate? Are you ready for me? Implying that the goal of life is to prepare for the ultimate spiritual encounter. For me, for a long time, the question for me, a guiding question for me in life has been, did you give more than you took in life? Did you give more than you took? I find the question so overwhelming and paralyzing at times and so inspiring and empowering at other times. But the questions need not be interrogative and judgmental. They could also for some be compassionate and empathic questions such as, how are you doing after that wild ride of life? Or did you love yourself and act gently with yourself? Of course, in this life, we will never know with certainty what is to come in the next life, but engaging in the thought experiment about the heavens can provide an important challenge for us to live each day consistently with our deepest commitments. Death will come all too soon for all of us, and each day is a chance to prepare to live our best lives with love, with joy, reflection, and awe. May we have the will and the vision to see the gates of heaven one day so that the world we live in now will have the potential to be redeemed just as we have the ability to be redeemed in the days to come. And friends, the other lens through which we might approach the Jewish historical question of heaven versus earth is the prism of messianism, Jewish messianism, which we can understand as an interest in arriving at some sort of final societal perfection at the end of days, is in some ways in evidence everywhere in modernity, including Zionists, both religious Zionism and, and secular Zionism, Chabad and secular Jewish movements, and even in the thinking of several secular Jewish thinkers, such as Karl Marx, Rosa Luxemburg, and Leon Trotsky, and other Bolsheviks. It seems we cannot take the messianic impulse out of the Jew. Today, this messianic impulse, unfortunately, has very dangerous expressions at times. More and more, we see messianism leading to extremism and also to the watering down of core Jewish values. The notion of the coming of Mashiach has not only been disproportionately important in Jewish thought, but also has often acted as a justification for a lack of responsibility. The concept of Mashiach becomes a religious excuse, a crutch, or a shortcut. When it is our collective version of the tooth fairy, we risk remaining re children religiously, constantly expecting a supernatural intervention that will instantaneously change all of nature and save us from ourselves. We interpret prophetic hyperbole too literally. Actually, we have a big conflict in our house right now around the tooth fairy because my seven-year-old son who's losing teeth left and right, um, he, he, he seems to have an idea that if he believes in the tooth fairy, he gets the money. But if he doesn't believe, the tooth fairy is all too evasive and sort of evaporates. So he's torn between truth and money. 
Should he embrace the notion of tooth fairy and receive the, the dollar under his pillow? Or should he embrace truth and reject the dollar under the pillow because the tooth fairy will disappear once he embraces the truth? <laughs> so this is his big moral dilemma these days, his moral theological dilemma, my sweet boy Lev. But friends, there's of course very different models at the foundation of Jewish thought in the Gemara. By the way, I'm laughing when I see you, Yehuda, because in the sukkah, my, 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 my three-year-old boy, Shaya, all he wanted to do was talk to Yehuda, talk to Yehuda, he, he, he's talking about you. In the Gemara, in Sanhedrin, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi wrestles with the question of when and how Messianism works and asks Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, by the way, who's so awesome, he shows up everywhere, when the Messiah will come. Eliyahu replies that he should go and ask the Mashiach himself, who is sitting at the entrance to the city of Rome. Whoa, city of Rome, Mashiach is sitting there. Rav Yehoshua asks Eliyahu Hanavi, how will he recognize the Mashiach at the gates of Rome? Eliyahu replies profoundly that he will be sitting amidst the poor and sick, putting bandages on them one by one. The Messiah exists on the periphery of society, the gates of Rome, and he is a healer. She is a healer. And in the conclusion of the story, Rabbi Yehoshua runs and indeed finds the Mashiach and asks him when he will reveal himself. And the Mashiach replies, today, today. Rabbi Yehoshua, confused, goes back to Eliyahu Hanavi, questioning what the Mashiach meant by today. And Eliyahu replies, quoting Psalms, that it is today if you will hear his voice. Friends, this is an amazing thing. There is no determined day for the, for the Messianic era. At every moment, the Mashiach is here, Jewish tradition teaches. It just depends whether we can hear this call for redemption. The Gemara is teaching that Mashiach, if not literally, then at least conceptually, is here already. Messianic possibility is always right in front of us in a very real way. The Rambam explains, that at the pinnacle of human progress, nature will remain as it is, but there will be universal benefit to all humankind. That messianic change will not be via miracles. Mashiach is not a miracle worker. Rather, he brings about change through natural means. It is through the good deeds of Jews that the road to the messianic era will be paved. This is fascinating, friends, because as you know, in Kabbalistic thought, the Messianic era is a whole new reality. But for the Rambam and the rationalists, the Messianic era looks very much like today with some changes. He explains that there will be no more jealousy and we'll feel that we will feel that we have sufficient resources due to the human transformation of society. There, it's an economic justice principle. There may be an enthroned king. Rambam calls this the philosopher king, of course, the one who fully contemplates and clings to God. But in the naturalistic view, as compared with the apocalyptic view, getting to a better place stems from us, not from this miraculous intervening redeemer. For the Rambam, the vehicle is halakha. And he explains that the purpose of halakha is to create a just society, as he shows in the Guide for the Perplexed, the Mornavuchim 327. The 20th century philosopher, Yeshayahu Leibovitz, explained further, based on his read of the Rambam, that Mashiach is not a person or event, rather it is a process. We are always waiting. It never actually comes about fully, but we must always be on that journey. The idea is what we call in math, asympt 
symptotic, a line that continually approaches a given curve but does not meet it at any finite distance. While the messianic impulse can be very dangerous, it can also be very positive. Perhaps one of the most important Jewish values to keep our optimism and idealism intact and to work to improve the world where we progress, but we never quite reach perfection. It is, as one of my friends here will say, a bullish view of life. We improve ourselves and the world through our human toil. The Talmudic sage Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai explains that if you're in the midst of planting a tree, that even if Mashiach comes, what do you do? You keep planting the tree. That we are a part of redemption does not exempt us from the work we continually need to do to advance it. The mitzvot of the Torah will never be nullified, but even in, not even in the future days, the Messianic age, as it says, in the Jerusalem Talmud of Megillah. We have made too many mistakes throughout history, thinking Mashiach is a person or an event. We know of them as Bar Kokhba, as Abu Lafia, as Shabbatai Svi, as Jacob Frank, and even some of the Hasidic Rebbe's. We even know them as the founding of the State of Israel. It was Christian influence that helped develop and perpetuate the idea of the single divine messianic human. The Jewish notion preceding that suggested that all people are imbued with Selim Elohim, with divinity. There is not a, simply a son of God. We are all children of God. At the end of the day, I would like to suggest that we are all Mashiach. Oh, I'm going to get beaten up here. Oh, don't, don't throw tomatoes at the screen. It'll only splatter your screen, not me. We are all Mashiach. We are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones we're waiting for, in, in a, in a, in a non-literal sense. The, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidus, taught that one does not look outside one's soul to bring about redemption. He said, all our prayers for redemption are essentially bound to be prayers for the redemption of the individual. He taught that each of us must turn inward and seek redemption through seeking transcendence in all of our actions and transactions. By, by redeeming our soul, we redeem the world. That's the radical ideal of chassidut. You don't have to go out there and just engage in political advocacy, although there's a value to that, of course, but actually by tr transforming yourself on a cosmic level, you transform the world. While there are some important things to learn from, so many important things to learn from the reform movement, I believe that in my own view, that it was also a mistake to remove messianism from the liturgy, as that movement has done. We repair the world through activism, but also through the moral component, components of all the mitzvot. Rav Cook emphasizes the messianic potential of our ethical actions and teachings. As Martin Buber said, there is no definite magic that is effective for redemption. Only the hallowing of all actions without distinction possesses redemptive power. Only out of the redemption of the everyday does the day of redemption grow. Friends, as passionate Jews, we are hopeful. We believe in progress. Mashiach is the name of the value of our doing something that is truly magnificent. It reminds us that we must keep the highest optimism about the human potential to achieve on the highest level and never, God forbid, become cynics. Cynicism is like the 614th mitzvah. As Rabbi Nachman says, there is no despair in this world, never despair. 
So we have raised the stakes. Friend, today we have raised the stakes. The Gemara in Shabbat 31a, as we mentioned earlier, said that when we ascend and stand at the end of our lives before heaven, one of the main questions asked of us will be whether or not we yearn for redemption. Did we continue to believe in a better world and commit our lives to furthering that vision? Or did we just uh, want to go to the spa? Nothing against the spa, but the spa, the spa should be accompanied by a desire for a better world. The spa is not the end. The spa gives us the energy for a better world. Yearning requires intentionality. We must ask ourselves, what is the redemption we are working to bring about? How is our davening helping to get us there? How are we helping to create a more just society? How are we preparing our children, our grandchildren to bring their contribution to redemption? How are we intertwining our tikkun atzmi, repair of the self, our tikkun kahal, repair of the community, our tikkun klau, the repair of, of our nation, and tikkun olam, the repair of our world? How are we intertwining these? So to conclude, friends, this is a formidable work. The biggest project that God gave the Jewish people and humanity. Perhaps a suggestion in the Talmud, Shabbat 118b, that every Jew keeping Shabbat would bring the Mashiach, means that if we were all to taste perfection together, we would be able to unite to collectively fulfill our mission. Perhaps the goal of Shabbat is to pause and taste a little bit of the perfection, the messianism that we will never fully reach. Oh! Okay, friends. 25 minutes into it. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Please unmute yourself. Jump in. I want to hear from you. Heaven versus earth. Yes, Steve. Um, what does the word redemption mean? Oh, wow. <laughs> I love it. Okay. What does the word mean? I love it. My first answer as, as my answer should be to every question is, I have no idea. I have no idea, you know? Um, but my second, my second answer is to give it a little context. There is a tradition as it's quoted in the Talmud that says we have to say the bracha of Ga'al Yisrael right before the Amidah. We have to, we have to pray for the redemption, um, for the redemption before we can stand in prayer. It has to be juxtaposed, Ga'al Yisrael, to, um, to this Amidah standing prayer. And the idea there of redemption is ultimately our belief that things can be and will be better. Our notion that there is oppression, there is stuckness, there is narrowness, there is confinement, and redemption is a liberation. It is a liberation from a narrow place. The narrow place of the heart, the narrowness of the mind, the narrowness of identity, the narrowness spatially and temporally, and the, the liberation is an expansion. It's an expansion of self, of mind, of soul, of heart, where we are liberated into a greater, more expansive realm. So we pray to the Redeemer that we can be redeemed from confinement. Now, for some people, that's a physical confinement. They're in solitary confinement as a, a, in prison. They are an animal in a factory farm cage. They're a person who has mental illness and is confined within a mind that, that causes them to suffer. I mean, the list goes on and on of types of physical and, and mental anguish of confinement. But other times are spiritual. We are spiritually trapped within our bodies. We're spiritually trapped within a certain realm of idea. 
And so the redemption, the redemption on the individual level is this liberation, the breaking open of the gates, the breaking down of the walls where, where we can feel the kedusha, the holiness of all life, of all being around us. And the redemption on a collective level is where we break down hatred. We break down evil forces in the world. We break down barriers that block us from empathy and from love. Love is the key to unlocking redemption. If we could truly love ourselves and God and our fellow human, the ones we love and the ones we don't love yet, if we truly lived immersed in the capacity for love, we would live in a redeemed world. So I have no idea what redemption means, um, but I think redemption has something to do with being able to exist in full dignity, be able to exist in full potentiality, be able to exist connected to oneness and to the one. That what we are fragmented and fractured into lots of little pieces, mind, body, and spirit, our body, our national borders, our, our property that we own and our neighbor's property and ideologies and political parties and denominations, we're fragmented, we're broken. And redemption is returning to oneness, returning to unity, returning to the interconnectedness of all life. So I don't really know, but that's 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 uh, that's my hunch. A rabbi, like yeah, Michael. In, in this discussion, we're talking about: are we talking about a Jewish heaven or a universal heaven? Okay, obviously, I don't think that of the nine billion people of the world, what is it? 30 million Jews, that 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 the question about study of Torah, I mean, how did this relate? Okay, awesome, awesome, I love it. Like, you know, you ever see those great um, talk shows where they go out in the street and they ask every doofus on the street uh, some question so they can show how nobody knows anything? They're trying to make the case that like Americans know nothing. And so they're like, who is the vice president? And they're like, uh, Jay Leno. You know, who is the like uh, secretary of defense? And they're like, uh, George Bush. They're like they have no clue. They have no clue. So I think if you ask the person in the street, how many Jews are in the world? They'd probably be like, oh, half of America. Or they'd be like uh, 1.5 billion in the world. Like little novice, no idea, right? And if there's 9 billion people in the world and there's only like 15 million Jews, right? Um, that is minuscule. I mean, in America, if we look at maybe 2%, but globally, tiny. Tiny. So it makes no sense to build a Judeo-centric theology for all of humanity. And so, as Elie Wiesel famously said, the goal of Judaism was never to make the world more Jewish, but to make the world more human. To make the world more human. Worry, unlike traditional Christianity that wants to proselytize and make the world Christian, unlike traditional Islam that wants to proselytize and make the world Muslim, traditional Judaism has always said, the goal is not to make the world Jewish. We don't want anyone to convert. If you knock down the doors, we'll embrace you. But our goal is to make the world more human. Be your own faith. Be, be your own, um, you know, live in your own ideology. That's great. And Ramban even says Christianity and Islam help to pave the pathway towards redemption. And so the other amazing thing is, as our Talmud says, and as Rambam really builds off, um, it, this idea that, and this is such an anomaly in monotheism, that heaven... Olam haba is not just for Jews, right? That righteous Gentiles of other faith or no faith, potentially, you know, good people in the world have a space in Olam haba. This is an anomaly in monotheism because many 
monotheistic traditions, as I shared, believe only their religion is the pathway to heaven. Uh, I, I think it's a very scary and dangerous ideology. Um, nonetheless, um, so this is a big idea. And so back to Michael's point, uh, although he might be on a phone call now, <laughs> back to Michael's point here, um, is that, um, yes, these questions, it's an interesting tension. Are these questions for Jews? Are these questions for humanity? Would it be any different? Would it be any different? The fact that the rabbis imagine that the first question at the gates of heaven is an economic question. Did you deal with your money justly? Is such a fascinating thing that would be certainly apl applicable to Gentiles as well as, as Jews, how we thought about our power of resources. And so, um, and so yeah, it, it, it's, a great, it's a great point. And this idea that Jews and Gentiles can ultimately be united, not only in this world, but in the next world is very profound. Thank you, Lauren, I think you were gonna share there. Okay, hi. Um, I think a lot of what you're saying and definitely what I've always understood is that we don't, we don't act like mention to get brownie points to go into Olam Haba. That Torah, and, and, and by Torah I mean expanded every all Jewish knowledge, is really there to teach us how to deal with other people and with the world. So, you know, I'm not only a tikkun alumnic, but it's definitely part of everything we do. And, oops, did, uh, sorry, somebody phoned in it. Um, what was I going to say? So, so I think maybe I'm being too idealistic, but I think when we follow mitzvot and when we're, we're dealing like in a proper way between person and person, it's because that's the right thing to do. And that is how we are resembling Hashem, right? It's, it's not like physically resembling, but it's like like a verb, like we're doing it. We're, made, we're being like God, we're Godding. And I think that's not so we should get to heaven. I think it's so that we can almost make like, like you say, a messianic age, that we could make kind of a heaven on earth. That's my take. Amazing, amazing. So Lauren, you'll appreciate this since you're calling from Canada. When I, when I was born in, in my early childhood, raised in Canada, they put me on ice skates pretty early. I was ice skating at uh, age three. And what they would do to get me to ice skate, because I'd probably rather be laying on the couch or doing whatever a three-year-old wants to do, I don't know. Um, I would skate to one side and they'd give me an M&M. And then I'd skate to the other side, they'd give me another M&M. And those M&Ms got me across the, the ice skating rink. Now, one day, they didn't have any more M&Ms left. Well, that was the last day I ice skated as a child, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, and so many people live their life like that. If you give yeah. me an M&M, I'll over there. Does that relate to giving kids candy when they first are introduced to the Torah? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> right. It's Canadian you know. Torah, skating. <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't Smarties. Smarties are Canadian oh, m Smarties, Smarties, yeah. So, you know, many people continue to live their life like that. If you give me a reward, I'll skate to that side. And give me an M&M or Smartie over there, and I'll skate to that side. And many religious Jews continue to live like that. This is all about self-interest. It's all about rewards. And, you know, on some level, that's the way our business world works. That's the way our political world works. That's the way a lot of our society works, is that it's incentive-driven. And uh, if that's going to get people to do good things, then we should use incentives. On the other hand, most doubt, most certainly you're right, that it would be wonderful to be able to transcend um, a reward and punishment model for human motives. 
if we could live our lives chasing virtue for its own sake, it's a pretty high level. I'm not there, um, but purely immersing in um, attachment to virtue for its own sake would be a beautiful thing. Yes, Anita. Anita, you're still muted. Okay, maybe Anita doesn't want to share yet. Cheryl, did I see you have a comment? Yes, and uh, for some reason, I cannot get my camera to turn around, so. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, just, just a comment to go along with what Michael said uh, earlier is, you know, the song and what you said to lead up to that is the, the song running in my head is uh, So that goes to the point of, um, I think, of, you know, it not just being Olam Haba is not just for Jews, it's for everyone, and also to not be afraid of of anyone or anything because we're we're all one, which is you know very idealistic. But you know I think that's what we all uh, you especially work towards you know understanding understanding each other. So it's a person to person to follow through with what you said about you know when we go to when we're we're standing at the, the at the gates you know they were standing at the gates you know were you were you good in business? Were you good to others? And um, and I also really liked what you said, which about the, you know we're all kind of the Mashiach because we have to do that to ourselves. We have to be that ourselves first. So I just wanted to comment. Beautiful, beautiful, Cheryl. A number <laughs> of amazing points there. Thank you so much. And just to build off one idea you shared there about not having fear. You know, it's interesting, I'm reading this book right now, just about to finish from this reformed rabbi who has spent a lot of his time at deathbeds. And he writes, and you might find this to be an overstatement, you might not. He said, in over a, th of the th over a thousand deathbeds he's been at, never once was the person who was in the dying process afraid of dying. You might think like from Hollywood that everyone is crying, terrified, what's gonna be? He said, oh yeah, some fears about people who are living, and if they'll be okay and things like that, but never once afraid of dying. When it's the, when it's someone's time, they're never afraid. Um, so I found that to be very interesting. And and what does it what does it mean to live afraid of death? And and where is fear of death actually productive and generative? And where is it actually uh, more paralyzing and potentially destructive? That could be for the uh, for the people left behind. That exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yehuda, Eric? Anita, if your unmuting is working, anyone? Um, thank you, Rabbi. This has been very enlightening. Um, I'm struggling to come up with a question, so I'm, I'm going to do my best here on this one. Um, you, you were talking, I mean, you, you, you gave great citations, and I, what I'm maybe, am, what I'm still kind of curious about is you, you talked about another form of existence. You, you made a comment to something like that earlier, uh, that heaven, it's not that it's that kind. Um, does, is there debate over like nefesh? Because when we say the in the morning, we talk about the soul returning. Is there some kind of correlation between the soul and that existence, you know, in the world to come? Is there is it, a it does it transcend, like, because I know the soul's in our physical body, but we talk about heaven and when we sleep, I don't hear about whether like, oh, you know, our soul 
leaves our body in, you know, it's like, a, it's like part of going to the, you know, the world's, the world to come versus, you know, and then it returns to earth. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if, what are your thoughts on that concept? Okay, awesome. Part of, part of that question, I'm going to punt because in a few debates, we have a debate called the body versus the soul. And we're going to look at body versus soul, which is a very different question of, of heaven versus earth. But one thing I will say is to start with Maimonides, the Rambam is an anomaly here. Most of the rabbinic tradition suggests that entry into Holom Abba is about the, our behaviors, about the life we lived, right? If you were it lived a good life, you did the right things, you did mitzvot, this and that, you know, then you have a place in Olam Haba. Maimonides thinks it is about the perfection of the intellect. And so, um, and the intellect here, in, in a platonic sense, the mind and the soul are kind of conflated. But essentially, if you did nothing to cultivate your soul in this world, nothing will exist of you afterwards because it's the Olam HaNeshamot, the world of souls. And if you cultivated a soul, then what you cultivated will continue to exist. It's, in you. it's not like, oh, I fed soup to the sick. I deserve Olam Haba. No, did you cultivate a soul level of existence? Which again is intellectually connected for him. And if you did, that is what will continue. It's kind of like you're in a hospital bed and you can't move and you're also drugged up so you can't think so clearly. What exists of you anymore? What exists of you in that hospital bed? You can't move, your body's not really functional. You can't really think clearly because you're drugged up and you're, you know, you're just laying in the bed. Is there a deeper realm of being that one can access in such a state of paralysis, a soulful level of existence? And, and for, for, for the, this olam haba, this olam haneshamot, this world of souls, that is the realm we exist in. It's not this Hollywood tale of dancing on clouds, holding our parents and our children's hands with a puppy dog and gummy bears raining from the sky. You know, <laughs> you know it's actually like this total like, um, atemporal um, and, and non-spatial realm of souls, a sort of existence that one could access in this world and maybe a meditative state where one transcends body, um, but not, not much beyond that. And so in our body versus soul session, we will talk about that. But again, I, wanted, I do want to emphasize that Rambam is an anomaly here and that um, Judaism is primarily not an intellectual or spiritual elitist tradition. And the person who's kind of a spiritual simpleton um, and not to put that down at all, but is a righteous person that our tradition says this person has a, you know, uh, a beautiful world, a, a place to go. So Eric, so thank you. I only touched, I only scratched upon it, but I, I want to say most of it for body versus souls. Yes, Yehuda. Yehuda. Oh, so very good on the leave them wanting more because you brought up the body versus soul. And in a way, in my mind, this heaven versus earth is kind of a parallel discussion so so now i have to come see what you say about that okay but i love the what yes please go ahead i love this citation from the best and that i you know i think that you know my working on my improvement and transformation and elevation is is working on my tikkun and that feeds into the tikkun olam yeah and i'm working on these things the musar and the halakha and, and i'm preparing my soul for the next world 
but so I, I really like that part. I'm not sure that I have anything profound to add to all of this. No, no, that's so powerful, Yehuda David, because we've done we've done such a tragic thing. We've what we've done is we've said, oh, that 20 year old who's at the picket line protesting, that's the one changing the world. Right? You need to be loud and in the streets screaming in order to be a change maker. Okay, now let me be clear. I'm not opposed to that model of change. I engage in some of that a little bit here and there. You know, so, but, but I think this is very important to understand. There's many Jewish ways to create and change. And this spiritualist approach and intellectualist approach of working on oneself, one can do that in every state. One can do this from, the, from, their, from their home. One can do this from the hospital. One can do this as a child or as a senior. This idea of working on one's soul or on one's character or in one prayerful life, the belief that that matters, that really matters in this world. Yes, we shouldn't have a spiritual realm without kindness. We need, we need that interpersonal realm as well. But it's all interconnected. So I thank you for that. And I think the Baal Shem Tov has pushed us in that direction. Yes, Mike. Um, I was going to ask at one point, can you have a concept of heaven without a concept of hell? But I'm hearing you seeking now that it may be a concept of a spiritual heaven or renewal versus non-existence upon death. or, or Yes, exactly. So that, that's where Rambam is going, as opposed to this notion of eternal damnation versus eternal reward. There is this sense that either you cultivated the soul to exist in the soulful realm, or you didn't, in which case your body dies, your brain dies, you're done. You're done. If you never cultivated the soul, like the soul is the part of yourself that is, is non-bodily. It's the part that continues to live when your body dies. And if you didn't do anything with that, then there's nothing there. It's not like you go to hell. It's just that like you, you just, you didn't invest in that. It's not there. And if you, if you develop that, then naturally it's the part of ourself that's so logically beyond our body, so clearly exists beyond the realm of, uh, of body. It's almost like that one of the closest things we could think of is the state of dreaming. In the state of dreaming, especially if it's lucid, you know, there's this notion that like your body is completely asleep um, as if it's, and the Talmud even says partially dead. It's like you're brought back to life when you wake up in the morning and you're in this other form of consciousness based on what exists beyond your bodily realm. Now, some would say, oh, that's just the random firing of neurons. That's also the bodily realm. But someone else could say there's something even beyond that. So, um, and then there's the other Jewish thought, which does indeed embrace Gehenna. But in Jewish thought, Gehenna is not eternal damnation. It's a purgatory for the, for the year of Kaddish. We're saying Kaddish to elevate that soul from Gehenna. It's almost like, you know, you, you have a three-year lease on your car and you want to get a, a car wash before you turn the car back in for the lease so they don't ding you and you get fined and when you start your new lease. So you go get a car wash. So that's purgatory. You're, you're bringing your soul, you're bringing your spark back to the bonfire and you want to just kind of clean it a little before it returns back to the holy source. So you go through this, this, this painful cleansing process. But as in Christian thought, that's eternal damnation. In Jewish thought, that is a temporary cleansing. Yes, uh, Blue, uh, Anita, you're unmuted, Anita. Anita? Okay, we still don't hear you. Okay, Blue 9797, did you wanna share something? Okay, anyone else? So, sorry about that. Um... I, I have one more additional question to ask. Um, Eric, and then Steve, I see your hand up after Eric. Perfect. Go ahead, please, Eric. 
Um, this is something that my wife and I've talked about and unfortunately she couldn't be here so but uh, I know there's been this notion of, of heaven on earth, the notion of like the topic of reincarnation isn't really discussed in Judaism and then the idea of, of I, I don't know where does, where does the idea of reincarnation or about the idea of the works on earth, on earth have not been completed before going to heaven. Like I've just wondered about this. I, I know this may be going too much into the, you know, the, the class you said in a couple of weeks of body versus soul, but. Oh, no, no, you're exactly right. No, but Gilgalei Hanashama, Gilgulim, reincarnation is most definitely found in our Kabbalistic literature. Um, and the, that idea is that exactly as you said, that you can't be done until you're done. You, one life is not enough to finish your work. You got to come back and get, you got to be a frog. You got to be a black woman. You got to be a Native American. You need to be in a wheelchair. You need to be a marathon athlete. You got to be a lot of things to perfect your soul, right? And I, what I love about that is it's a tool. It's a tool way for, uh, uh, it's a tool for empathy. I am not me. I am all of these things. My soul has been various races, various genders has been various socioeconomic statuses, has been various nationalities, different, different species. My soul is expansive in many different bodies. And the other thing it does, it invests in the future. I say, I'm not concerned about climate change. I'm gonna die before this world really gets too polluted for me to breathe. Let's say somebody thought, uh, you know, like that. I say, no, no, I'm gonna be back. I'm gonna be back, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be back. And so, um, so yeah, yeah, reincarnation, that idea is definitely, over there, there's so much to say about it. I've written a number of articles about it. If you want to Google, I'm one of the few contemporaries who's super interested in reincarnation, um, and I use it as a moral as a moral vehicle um, for in a number of ways. And I share the primary sources over there, Jewish sources that deal with it. So if you just type Yanklowitz reincarnation, you'll find a few things. Yes, Steve. Oh yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, uh, first, I, I absolutely believe that you are the reincarnation of all of the great jokes that have ever been told in, in history. You make me laugh so much, and I appreciate that very much. Number, number two, uh, and this might allude to something that Eric just said and something that Cheryl might have said, and excuse me if it has nothing to do with anything. I don't think of Hashem as uh, an entity or a noun. I think of it as a verb. And I think of myself as Hasheming, hopefully, during the day, as opposed to I did something good and someone, some entity is, is going to reward me for it. I think we're just constantly trying to Hashem. And I think it is intuitive and instinctive, and, and I think most of us do it like we breathe. We inhale, we exhale, and we don't think about it. I, I love it, Steve, so awesome. You know, it, it, you know th these ideas remind me of that, <laughs> of that line, the Jews are like everyone else, only more so. <laughs> right? It's like, well, you know, we have so many different theological ideas. We're such an intense people. And I love your idea of God as a verb. In fact, there's a book out there called God as a verb. If you haven't read it, it's, it's worth checking out God as a verb. But I, I love this. Actually, by the way, uh, one of my friends, a rabbi in New York, uh, sent me a message yesterday. He said, Be'ezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem, my cab will arrive in five minutes. 
I said, with the help of God, I mean, it's only five minute drive. He says, no, no, my cab driver's name is Hashem. <laughs> he had some Indian cab driver named Hashem. And then the other friend on the message said, he recently had a doctor doing surgery. And he said, Be'ezrat Hashem, with the help of Hashem, my surgery will go okay. And he said, no, literally, my doctor's name was Dr. Hashem. You know, so with the help of Hashem, I you know, so it's right that God is a verb. Um, we can do godly. We can do, well, now I'm making it an adver adverb, I guess. Um, but really, God is a verb. This idea is called halachta bedrachav, that we should emulate imitatio Dei. We should emulate the divine traits. And that's what it means to be godly, is to do these godly acts of kindness, acts, humble uh, acts of growth and of giving and of love, as I know everyone here is a part of. So I appreciate so much that point. That's such a beautiful idea. Rather than a notion of just, you know, the, the beard in the cloud who's taking a scorecard, right? That rather we can bring heaven down to earth. We can bring God into flesh when we do the godly. I love that. Anita, are you back? Able to unmute? Okay, not yet. Anyone else have a closing comment here? Maybe one last person, perhaps? Okay, friends, so we have looked today at the great debate of history, heaven versus earth. As we saw, it starts right in Genesis, the Torah portion we read last week, where there's a contradiction. First, we see heaven quoted before earth, and then we see in chapter two, the opposite, where um, earth is quoted before, before heaven. And so this question of primacy and... Um, and we see how this plays out, this, this deep concern for this world, even if there's a consciousness for the next world. And yet the consciousness of the next world pragmatically is a moral tool to help us zoom out and ask ourselves every hour of the day, what is my life about? What am I here for? And am I living up to that commitment every hour to stay laser beam focused on my life goals, laser beam focused on what I'm trying to achieve here in this world. I give us all the bracha, and I hope you'll give it back to me that we should um, enjoy our lives, be filled with happiness, but through that enjoyment, always stay laser beam focused on what we wish the goal of our life to be in this world, and in doing so, may we bring the heaven down to earth. And as my seven-year-old son likes to say, at the end of every talk, I should crowd surf and I should um, uh, stage dive. So now is my stage dive. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.